Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm glad you joined us today. You know, it seems more and more that we live in times of uncertainty. And there's a lot happening all around us in the world today. And despite our challenges, I am so optimistic about what the future holds for you and for me. And with all the disruption in our world, I hope that this podcast can help you find some peace and a few ways to find that greatness waiting for you in your life to help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get the next podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about this simple principle. Nothing great is easy. Spanning the border between Ontario, Canada, and the state of New York is a group of three waterfalls at the base of Niagara Gorge. The largest and most famous of the three, standing at almost 200 feet tall, is Horseshoe Falls. During the peak daytime tourist hours, more than 5.9 million cubic feet of water go over the crest of the falls every minute. Horseshoe Falls is the most powerful waterfall in North America as measured by flow rate. And like the world's tallest mountains or the ocean's greatest depths, any dramatic natural wonder draws people, daredevils, adventurers, attempting to gain notoriety and attempting the impossible. For Niagara Falls, that means people trying to leap from its heights and survive the tumbling and swirling waters below. In 1901, a 63-year-old Michigan school teacher, Annie Edson Taylor, became the first person to go over the falls in a barrel as a publicity stunt. She survived, bleeding, but otherwise unharmed. Soon after exiting the barrel, she said, no one ought to ever do that again. The reason for going over the falls in a barrel is to protect you from the swirling undertoes and currents in the water underneath the falls. These currents are impossible to survive without a barrel to keep you afloat in the tumbling, turbulent water. Others have followed and survived the plunge unharmed, but many have drowned or been severely injured in the attempt. Charles Stevens, a 58-year-old barber from Bristol, England, went over the falls in a wooden barrel and was the first person to die doing so. Bobby Leach went over Horseshoe Falls in a crude steel barrel and needed rescuing. Smiling Jean Lucier tried an entirely different concept, going over the falls in a large rubber ball. He was successful and survived the ordeal. Now, to gain perspective of the risks of going over the falls from a height of almost 200 feet, take a look at the typical house, which is two stories tall. Then stack nine two-story houses on top of each other, climb to the top, and jump from your 18-story perch. From this height, when you land on the water, it is not a soft landing. It will likely kill you. And in case you think going over the falls in some type of craft or barrel is something that was only done 50 or 100 years ago, in 1990, Jesse Sharp, a whitewater canoeist from Tennessee, paddled over the falls in a closed-deck canoe. He chose not to wear a helmet to make his face more visible for photographs. He also didn't wear a life vest because it believed it would hinder his escape from the hydraulics at the base of the falls. His boat flushed out of the falls, but his body was never found. Not long after, Robert Overacker went over the falls on a jet ski. 
His rocket-propelled parachute failed to open, and he plunged to his death. Perhaps one of the most miraculous stories that ever took place at Niagara Falls was on a Saturday afternoon. A man from Niagara Falls took his two children for a boat ride in the upper Niagara River. The boat developed motor trouble, capsized into the river, and all three were thrown into the upper rapids. The man went over the falls and was killed. His 17-year-old daughter, Deanne, was being furiously swept towards the brink of the falls. Hundreds stood at the brink of the falls, almost paralyzed with concern for the plight of the young girl. Two men sprang into action. John Hayes, a truck driver and an auxiliary police officer from New Jersey, climbed over the rail, stretched out his arm, and pled with Deanne to reach out to him. She later said that it was his pleading voice that made her swim harder, and she caught his thumb just before going over the falls. Fearful the current would break his hold on the young girl, he shouted for help, and climbing over the railing, another man came to the rescue, and the two pulled the frightened teenager to safety. Once on land, Deanne's concern turned to her seven-year-old brother. She was told her brother had gone over the falls. All she could do was pray for him. The waters below the falls are impossible to survive. The currents from the rivers converging create huge undercurrents and fast-moving whirlpools, making swimming out of the river almost impossible. After Roger went over the falls, one of the scenic tourist boats was just making its turn below the falls when one of the crew spotted the bright orange life jacket he was wearing. The captain maneuvered the boat so the crew could pick up the boy on the starboard side. After two unsuccessful throws, a life preserver landed within reach of the crying boy. Lifted safely on board the vessel, Roger mumbled his concern about his sister. And within the hour, word spread of this Niagara miracle. Well, in 1873, Matthew Webb was serving as a captain of the steamship Emerald when he read an account of the failed attempt by J.B. Johnson to swim the English Channel. He became inspired to try, left his job, and began training. Two years later, Webb made his first cross-channel swimming attempt, but strong winds and poor sea conditions forced him to abandon the swim. On his second attempt, despite stings from jellyfish and strong currents, which took him significantly off course, he became the first person in history to swim the English Channel. Well, then, Matthew turned his attention to swimming the Niagara River Gorge directly below the falls. His swim was incredibly dangerous through the Whirlpool Rapids, a feat many observers considered suicidal. On the 24th of July, 1883, he jumped into the river from a small boat located near the Niagara Falls Bridge and started his swim. Accounts of the time indicate that in all likelihood, Webb successfully survived the first part of the swim. But as he entered the section of the river located near the entrance to the whirlpool, he disappeared under the rolling waves. His body would be found later, and Webb was buried in the Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls. A few years later, Webb's elder brother, Thomas, unveiled a memorial placed on Matthew's grave. On it read a short inscription, Nothing great is easy. Now, I don't think the purpose of our life is to see if we can ride in a barrel over the most powerful falls in the world, or survive a 190-foot fall, or swim the most turbulent waters in North America. But I do think at some time in your life and mine, we are given the opportunity to do something we may not think we can or attempt something we're afraid to try. We are given the opportunity 
to do something great. And here's the thing. I see so many people in our world today who look longingly on social media, who see people doing remarkable things, building a business, enhancing lives, overcoming odds, reaching heights. And these observers seem to think that somehow these achievers got lucky or fortunate in their attempt of something great. And while luck and fortune has its role in our lives, I've learned the same simple lesson that Matthew's brother put on his grave marker. Nothing great is easy. You know, you've likely heard the story of Pablo Picasso, who died in 1973. Earlier in his life, it is said that a woman approached Picasso in a restaurant and asked him to scribble something on a napkin. And she said she would be happy to pay whatever he felt it was worth. Picasso complied. He drew a rather creative drawing and then said, that will be $10,000. The woman then replied, but you did that in 30 seconds. To which Picasso also replied, no, it's taken me 40 years. And that's the thing, isn't it? Greatness, great talent, great skills, character, great people are not built easily. It is hard. It's difficult. You know, one of my favorite baseball films is A League of Their Own. In 1992, Penny Marshall brought to life the story of the All-American Professional Baseball League that came about when World War II threatened to shut down Major League Baseball. Chicago Cubs owner Walter Harvey bankrolled this woman's league. In Marshall's movie, the girls' team, the Rockford Peaches, are coached by a former male Major League Baseball player and chronic alcoholic, Jimmy Dugan. At one point in coaching his players, the players are complaining about the living conditions, the travel, the long practice sessions, and the difficulties of the game, saying, it's too hard. To which Dugan replies, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Well, the players embrace the heart of it and go on to find out who they really are as they become a real team and play for the championship. Nothing great is easy. This is the way it is with us. Often it's in the hard where we remember who we are. Too often we think that the mountain ahead of us is too hard, too high, and too difficult to climb. But discovering who you are is usually not found at the top of the mountain, but in the hard, in the work of the climb of it. So it is one thing to know that nothing great is easy, but why talk about it here on this podcast? Why do we need to know it and remember it? Because I suspect right now in your life, you're facing something great, great in terms of what you're trying to achieve, great in terms of the trial before you, great in terms of the change you need to make in order to be who you want to be. Perhaps your business or your team in order to be great is going to demand more from you more than you ever thought possible. Perhaps your cancer diagnosis or physical trials are going to take more courage and endurance than you thought possible. Perhaps that habit you're facing seems impossible to change. Perhaps your work to become a woman or man of faith, to become giving or kind or charitable, is harder and more trying than you thought. If any of these things are true, then remember, nothing great is ever easy. And like Picasso, it will take you a few years of working and trying and becoming before you may see the results of what you're seeking. But it is the hard. It's because it is hard that makes it worth it. The hard makes it great. So don't you quit. Keep your focus on your end goal. Nothing great 
is easy. James Clear, in his book Atomic Habits, said, When nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stonecutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without so much as a crack showing in it. Yet, at the hundred and first blow, it will split in two. And I know it was not that last blow that did it, but all that had gone before. I found this is true. Sometimes it really is the hundred and first blow that does the trick. And sometimes we underestimate the power in doing the difficult a little bit better each day. James tells this story. The fate of British cycling changed one day in 2003. The organization, which was the governing body for professional cycling in Great Britain, had recently hired Dave Brailsford as its new performance director. At the time, professional cyclists in Great Britain had endured nearly 100 years of mediocrity. Since 1908, British riders had won just one gold medal in the Olympics, and they fared even worse than cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. In 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. In fact, the performance of British riders had been so underwhelming that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they were afraid that it would hurt sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their bikes. Well, Brailsford had been hired to put British cycling on a new trajectory. What made him different from previous coaches was his relentless commitment to a strategy that he referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, which was the philosophy of searching for a tiny margin of improvement in everything you do. Brailsford said the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike, and then improve each of those things by 1%, you will get a significant increase when you put them all together. Well, Brailsford and his coaches began by making small adjustments you might expect from a professional cycling team. They redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable and rubbed alcohol on the tires for better grip. They asked riders to wear electrically heated overshorts to maintain ideal muscle temperature while riding. They used biofeedback sensors to monitor how each athlete responded to a particular workout. The team tested various fabrics in a wind tunnel and had their outdoor riders switch to indoor racing suits, which proved to be lighter and more aerodynamic, but they didn't stop there. Brailsford and his team continued to find 1% improvements in overlooked and unexpected areas. They tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the fastest muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach each rider the best way to wash their hands to reduce the chances of catching a cold. They determined the type of pillow and mattress that led to the best night's sleep for each rider. They even painted the inside of the team truck white, which helped them to spot little bits of dust that would normally slip by unnoticed, but could degrade the performance of the finely tuned bikes. These and hundreds of other small improvements accumulated. The results came faster than anyone could have imagined. Just five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track events at the 2008 Olympic Games, where they won an astounding 60% of the gold medals available. Four years later, when the Olympic Games came to London, the Brits raised the bar as they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. That same year, Bradley Wiggins became the first British cyclist to win the Tour de France. The next year, his teammate, Chris Froome, won the race, and he would go on to win again in 2015, 16, and 17, giving the British team five Tour de France victories in six years. 
During the 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 world championships and 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals and captured five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful run in cycling history. James then asked these questions. How does this happen? How does a team of previously ordinary athletes transform into world champions with tiny changes that, at first glance, would seem to make a modest difference at best? Why do small improvements accumulate into such remarkable results? And how do you replicate this approach in your life? Well, I think the answer is obvious. But no doubt, some of us listening to this approach to racing or life may be thinking it sounds exhausting. In 100 ways, trying to be a little bit better. I mean, in my business, I'm working to make a 1% improvement in how I talk to people, how I approach, how I present, how I help partner with others, how I lead my team. That seems like a lot. And the truth is, you don't need to do everything in a day, but yes, it is a lot. But nothing great is easy. And it's remarkable how much small pursuits result in great outcomes. And what people don't always realize is the thing we talked about a few weeks ago in this podcast. Goals are about the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the processes that lead to those results. If we work at putting in the processes that lead to success, we soon find that the goal is more achievable tomorrow than it seems today. Let me give you a simple example. For the last five years, I've wanted to reduce my body fat. I haven't been dramatically overweight, but not in the shape I wanted to be in. I set goals, thought about what I wanted, but I never seemed to make meaningful progress until I put in the systems needed to reach my goals. I changed my workouts, shifting to significantly more weight resistance and cross-training. I changed how I ate, and soon the system took over and the goal became irrelevant. My body fat is down 10 percentage points. My weight is down 20 pounds. And the point is this. Systems, incremental improvement in systems will help you do what you've been unable to do before. Consider these examples. If you're trying to improve your spirituality, a system of religious study, a system of writing down your impressions, a system of meaningful prayer will make all the difference in the world. In your business, a system of how you find prospective leads, consistently followed and improved, will change the face of that business. Remember the difference, as James points out, between goals and systems. If you're a coach, your goal might be to win a championship. Your system is the way you recruit players, manage your assistant coaches, and conduct practice. If you're an entrepreneur, your goal might be to build a million-dollar business. Your system is how you test products, hire employees, and run marketing campaigns. If you're a musician, your goal might be to play a new piece. Your system is how often you practice, how you break down and tackle difficult measures, and your method for receiving feedback from your instructor. Yes, nothing great is easy, but it is in the implementation of simple systems in which greatness is found. Next, in doing hard things, there is often a way to make them easier. Years ago, I read Elizabeth Gilbert's famous book, and I remember a few powerful things from that book. And one of the things I remember is a simple phrase, a simple line she quotes in that book. 
it's profound and it's changed the way I look at working through, walking through the tough things we all deal with. Here's the simple line that I've never forgotten. She said, I crossed the street to walk in the sunshine. Now think about it. Imagine yourself walking from your apartment to your job in the city. Because of the height of the buildings, the street is sometimes shaded on one side and the sunshine is on the other. You have to walk the distance anyway. You have to travel the same street, but you and I both have a choice. We can step across the street and walk in the sunshine or remain in the shade. This is a powerful metaphor for other things in life, difficult things that we're going through. You're working your business. Many things are boring and monotonous and discouraging, but you can walk in the sunshine by fostering relationships and being curious about people along the way. And your curiosity may lead to relationships that will bless your life or things you may learn or wonder and beauty that may lift your spirit. You'll walk the same street, but you can make it a light-filled walk by choosing where and how you walk. Next, to help you through hard things on your way to something great, Remember this. Not long ago, Kyle Williams, a now retired defensive tackle who played for the Buffalo Bills, shared an experience. Williams is a big man at over 300 pounds, and he was an All American tackle for LSU and played 13 seasons with the Bills. Williams is an exceptional player. However, shortly before his retirement, Williams reflected back on his life, and he reflected on what made the difference in helping him become great rather than just good. He said as a young high school player, he was a bit arrogant. With raw natural talent, he seemed to always get by on his size or reputation. And he had fallen into the habit of just doing enough, but never really giving himself to the hard, to the work of it. He had a history teacher who was also his defensive coordinator on the football team, who changed his attitude and the direction of his life. One day, he was having a conversation with that coach and a father of another player. The father was saying to the coach how good Kyle was with Kyle standing there. And the coach listened and then said to both Kyle and the player's father, Kyle is indeed talented. And you know, if he just worked as hard as he could all the time and practice and play as hard as he could all the time, he could be really special. Kyle said, It was then that he learned a lesson that helped him became the great player he became. In every practice, in every situation he played, he practiced as hard as he could. The point is, he was going to go through the same practices one way or the other. On the one hand, he could do enough to get by. On the other hand, he could give it his all. This is a powerful lesson for you and me. You're going to the gym anyway. Will you work as hard as you can? You'll do the same business activities anyway. Will you center yourself and focus all your effort during the time allotted? You know, not long ago, I went to the U.S. Tennis Open in New York. One of the players I watched was Coco Gauff, a young 19-year-old player having tremendous success. In one of the interviews with her, she was asked about the leap forward she had made to become great and how she had gotten into such excellent physical shape so that during the long, tough three-set matches, she could perform at the highest levels. She said that along the way, she got a new coach. And that new coach brought a new philosophy. The philosophy was, they were going to practice as hard as she plays in a match, 
and do it for two to three times the length of a typical match. So when she finds herself in a tough match, physical endurance is not something she has to worry about because she's done much more in practice. Nothing great is easy. But great things can be easier when we give all of ourselves in times that don't demand all of ourselves. This helps us to get into the habit of being great. You know, for years, I taught a simple concept. I call it centering. Centering means in whatever you're doing, the mundane, the everyday, the things in which you might be tempted not to give your full attention or effort, you center your attention and effort on what is currently before you. It means you do that thing with all of your heart, your feeling, your passion, your might, your energy, your mind, your focus and attention and strength, your physical will. If you're reading, give it all your heart and mind. If you're a student in a class, give it all your mind and strength. It means to be wholehearted, totally invested and engaged. You know, when I teach business strategy at the university, I'm amazed to see that wholehearted students get so much from my class and half-hearted students take away so little. Both types of students attend the class for the same amount of time. Both are present for the same discussion, but some leave enriched and others indifferent. Best-selling author Anthony Robbins said, one reason so few of us ever achieve what we truly want is that we never direct our focus. We never concentrate our power. In fact, I believe most people fail in life because they major in minor things. Centering helps us concentrate our power. For example, in your morning reading time or podcast time, what if you fully centered on learning? No distractions, no text messages, no Instagram. You gave it your whole heart. You gave it your full concentration. Would you get more out of your time spent? Would you lay hold on more truth? Would you learn more? Yes, of course. You see, the currency of today isn't time. People think that the scarce commodity of our day is time because we're so busy, but it's not time. It's attention. We have so many distractions in our life, in the palm of our hands and on the screens around us, that we've learned not to focus. And as a result, we rarely lay hold of things that can influence us and make us great. Centering enables us to avoid distraction. It will change your life. Let's say you schedule your day in chunks of time to do certain important things. And what if during each chunk of time you centered entirely on the task at hand? What you'll find is you do more, more efficiently and quickly when you center. You become a better version of yourself. Centering works amazingly well in relationships. A father spending 15 minutes of fully centered time with his son is so much more effective than a father spending an hour of half-hearted time. Centering gives you a sense of purpose and success. Because you center, you learn more, you feel more, you succeed more. And that success, that feeling, feeds your subsequent actions. You see, living life as a centered person is immensely more rich and fulfilling than a non-centered person. Imagine a person who has made the decision to start a business. If they center on the critical activities of that business, not just make a half-hearted attempt, but a whole-hearted immersion, are they more likely to succeed? Yes. The most amazing thing about centering is this. When you get into the habit of centering, 
you start to apply it in all areas of your life. Then relationships improve, your ability to play, to focus, to read, to learn, everything gets better. And you also waste less time. Last, nothing great is easy. So you need to be at your very best self. And sometimes we forget that we are the goose that lays those golden eggs in our life. Meaning, take care of yourself as if you're the most awesome person you've ever met. You know, Aesop was a Greek philosopher and storyteller who lived about 600 BC and is credited with a number of fables now collectively known as Aesop's fables. Here is fable number 87. A cottager and his wife had a goose that laid golden eggs every day. They supposed that the goose must contain a great lump of gold on the inside. And in order to get to the gold, they killed the goose. Having done so, they found to their surprise that the goose differed in no respect from other geese. The foolish pair, thus hoping to become rich all at once, deprived themselves of the gain which they were assured day by day. Here's the point for you and me in the context of caring for ourselves. You, who you are, your talent, your emotional well-being, your energy, your mental focus is the goose that brings the potentially good things about in your life. So you must treat yourself with great care. I've learned this lesson the hard way in life. Pay attention to caring for yourself and you will have the wherewithal to do great things, to do hard things, to do the tough stuff better. So as we end today, remember, nothing great is ever easy. And remember, small incremental improvements each day is how you do the hard things well. Focus on the systems you employ rather than the goals you have. Give all you have to whatever is at hand. You have to walk the same street but choose the happier, sunnier side and center in all you do and watch the great in your life, while not easy, will be a bit more easily achieved as a result. Thanks for being here today. I look forward to being with you again next week when we'll talk about how to open your eyes to new ways of seeing the world and your place in it. I look forward to being with you again soon.